Welcome to The Big Interview with Dan Rather, the podcast that delves deep into the heart of music through the words of the artists themselves. This is your backstage pass to intimate conversations with legends and icons from across the music world, as guided by none other than the legendary Dan Rather. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from rock and roll to country, from pop to alternative. We cover it all right here on The Big Interview with Dan Rather. So sit back, relax, and prepare to immerse yourself in the stories, the struggles, the triumphs, and the tunes that have shaped our musical landscape. Here's your host, Dan Rather. On this edition of The Big Interview, Southern rock pioneer Dickie Betts. Dickie Betts. Hey, man. In the flesh. How are you doing? Man, what an honor to see you. Thanks what for coming. What an honor to see you. I'm big I really appreciate it. Come in and have a seat. Dickie Betts is one of the great rock guitarists of our time. As one of the founding members of the Allman Brothers Band, he is revered for his distinctive voice and masterful songwriting. Walk along the river, sweet lullaby, you just keep on flowing, don't worry about where it's going. There may have been called the Allman Brothers Band, but it was Betts who wrote some of the group's most unforgettable tunes. Songs like Ramblin' Man have become instantly recognizable American classics. The Allman Brothers Band had a style of music that was a little bit country, a little bit rock and roll, and a little bit blue. Together, Dickie Betts, Greg and Dwayne Allman, J. Mo Johansson, Barry Oakley, and Butch Shrucks defined the sound of Southern rock from the 1970s onward, and their concerts were the stuff of legend. Dickie Betts' layered compositions for songs such as in memory of Elizabeth Reed, highlighted the band's musicality and allowed them to improvise on stage, which often resulted in show-stopping jam sessions. The Allman Brothers Band Personal History is as storied as their music. The tragic early deaths of guitarist Dwayne Allman and bassist Barry Oakley were dark palls in their budding career, and the band's drug use and inner turmoil led to plenty of discord over the years. Betts and the Allman Brothers Band parted ways back in 2000. He continued on, however, 
with his longtime side project, Great Southern, until 2014, when he decided it was time to retire, or so he thought. In 2017, Greg Allman and Butch Trucks passed away. Dickie Betts and J. Mo Johansson are now the only two original members of the Allman Brothers Band left. Betts recently came out of retirement and went on tour, playing some of his trademark songs from the Allman Brothers Band, carrying on their legacy. I met up with Dickie Betts this summer at the Iridium, a jazz club in New York City. Shortly after our interview, Betts was forced to suspend his tour due to health-related setbacks. But now his management says that he and the Dickie Betts Band plan to resume touring soon. What a pleasure to see you. Oh, good to see you. Dan. In the flesh, <laughs> hat, beard, mustache. <laughs> is that you or is that a pose? <laughs> I've had one ever since I was about uh, 18, I think mustache so I it's kind of part of just the way I look you know what got you to come out of retirement seen from a distance you had the perfect life had all the money you needed mm -hmm. you've had a glorious career yeah. you could spend your days fishing or feet up just chewing tobacco or something but you came out of retirement why I just I missed it I just done it so long you know seven, I was 70 and I turned I'm just going to play golf and go fishing and, you know, enjoy myself for, for a change. And, well, I enjoyed myself about as much enjoyment as <laughs> I I really started missing being on the road and, you know, getting out and doing things like this and meeting people and right. great uh, having conversation with doing things like this. You don't do sitting at home. And, uh, I did a Rolling Stone interview, and people got stirred up about, you know, wonder where I went, you know. And uh, then, then Greg passed away. And I think the people, the fans, saw, wow, this music is, is we're, we're going away. Dickie Betts is probably the last one that, that I really portray the music. Well, I wrote half of it. My my stuff, Jessica Elizabeth Reed, Blue Sky, Ramblin' Man, you know, things like that are just part of that sound. People started clamoring and asking to see the band back. It had a lot to do with losing Greg. Tell me about the Dickie Betts band that you put together now that you're touring with. Well, I've had a, a lot of bands in my life. This is a, a really, really a great combination of guys. I got a, my son is playing guitar and he's become excellent. And um, middle-aged kid, but he's a young man and he's playing lead guitar with me and uh, another slide guitar player and lead guitar and singer is um, Damon Fowler. There's an up-and-coming talent that you'll probably have him on your show before. Well, you still sing yourself. <laughs> oh, yeah, I sing. I, I, you know, write and sing. I always have. But I really feel like a guitar player that sings you know, some songs. But uh, it's a seven-piece band, a lot of, lot of music. Crazy love. 
When Dan Rather's big interview with Dickie Betts continues, Dwayne Allman, the Allman Brothers Band, and stories of their beginnings. Stay with us. Starting an enduring legacy like the Allman Brothers Band takes skill and meeting the right person. Dickie meets Dwayne as Dan Rather's big interview continues. You grew up in Florida. Yeah. Born there, grew up there. Yeah, West Palm Beach. And when did you first start playing the guitar? Well, see, my family, on my dad's side, played music for just, you know, just for hobby. And it was almost, it was kind of in their blood. They were all guitar players and fiddle players. I was playing, thought I was playing at, at before school, you know. Right. Um, I would think I was playing, I really wasn't, I had a little ukulele. <laughs> and uh, it was, that was the way I started playing music. So I, by the time I was 16, I was playing teen club kind of, uh, you know, things, proms at school. We put a little band together. We were learning how to put bands together and right. what, what we needed. And we gradually became professional. And we're playing clubs. We're, uh, you could play a club when you're 18. And after that, you eventually became a, a founding member of the Allman Brothers Band. Yeah. Became one of the best known, most respected guitarists around. I was surrounded with some great players. I had to play or get out. <laughs> so. Well, I want to talk to you about some of those great players. But first, I want to go back to the early stages when you were putting the Allman Brothers Band together and your early successes. Talk to him about Dwayne. Oh, Dwayne, he was uh, he was the guy's guy. I mean, you you either loved Dwayne or you hated him. You didn't hate him, but you, he'd, he would tell different people just exactly what he felt. He didn't beat around the bush, and he had a, he had a, a very authoritative uh, Southern drawl voice, and he was just a, a great leadership type guy. He was never the big leader of the Allman Brothers Band, which everybody thinks. Right. He was a leader without claiming to be a leader. You know, he just had a leadership character, and um, so we we were more of a democratic kind of a move, moving together kind of thing, and. And uh, Dwayne and I talked a lot when we'd make long trips together and we'd be drinking a bottle of wine or something and just talking about women or bands or what broke. And we would talk about things that broke bands up and what we'd have to safeguard against and personal things like jealousies of each other on stage, you know, and how, how damaging that can be. And it, it's not a a competition like sports, you know, playing music, it's a, you know, and jealousy clashes all that up, you know, right. you have to just meld together and work together. There's a lot of interesting insights for a 22-year-old guy, and, you know, that's pretty, pretty, precocious. pretty good thinking, you know. 
Dwayne Allman, of course, is there's good reason he's in the Hall of Fame as a slide guitar player. He's one of the best. Is it a coincidence or not that you have a son named Dwayne? Named after Dwayne Allman. That's of what course. I see. Well, fair or unfair to say that neither the Allman Brothers Band or you as a professional, you accomplished all kinds of things collectively and individually since then. It's fair or unfair to say that it was never the same after Dwayne died so young. It, no, it, it's God. Yeah, I mean, if you had a brother, my, uh, I don't know. I have if, a brother. Yeah. Well, if you lost him, things wouldn't be the same, you know. I uh, mean, you carry on. You enjoy life. You you don't you don't quit being Dan Rather. But it's, it's different now that your brother's gone. That's just. It's that kind of thing, and and as a band, performing band, we were very good at re, regrowing an arm. <laughs> you know, it, Chuck Level was a great player that came in after Dwayne passed. We didn't get a guitar player for years after Dwayne passed, if you know. True. Long time. But we got a Chuck Level, who was fantastic. The work he did on Jessica is just amazing. He damn near <laughs> deserved to be shared writers on that. I mean, the piano work he did, with yeah. the parts, and yeah. he, he, he brought a lot to the table on that song. It was well written to begin with, but Chuck Level was a great replacement that gave us you know, the ship wasn't sinking. <laughs> it was it was patched up and it was strong. Yeah. And a lot of people were surprised because a lot some people thought Dwayne Allman was just a, the whole, you know, mental giant behind the Allman Brothers. There was a lot of talent in that band. I think without question, the best known most famous song of the Allman Brothers band was Ramblin' Man. And, you know, I'm a Hank yeah, Williams yeah, man, yeah. and he did Ramblin' Man. Yeah, I I was influenced by that song when I wrote this, actually. The Hank Williams song? Yeah, yeah. Are you a Ramblin' Man? <laughs> I was born with it. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that's an autobiography, that song. <laughs> <laughs> well, how did it come about? Did it just strike you all at once, or something came That song? Through? Yes. Oh, that's the craziest thing. I ha I had a um, a friend, and he was a fence builder, barbed wire fence builder for these ranches. And I was living in one of, one of his little rooms in his house. And uh, when I went out and made, more or less made it, started starting to make it on the road, um, I would come back to see him every now. He'd say. How you been doing? Playing your music and doing the best you can, I reckon. He was a real Kansas City hayseed, you know. And that line just stuck with me. I said, that's rhythm, rhythmic line. You know, playing the music and doing the best you can, I guess. Playing the music, doing the best you can. Yeah. Even for my non-musical ear, that has a ring to it. Yeah, and he kind of had that southern kind of a lyrical a rhythmic voice, you know, or accent. 
Anyway, I carried that, that idea around in my head for a couple of years, or a year, you know. I changed it around, I mean, instead of playing my music, I'm trying to make a living, you know, mm-hmm. trying to relate to people that don't play music. I sat down and write it, and I wrote it in five minutes. It's like you're writing a letter to your girl. But it's not fair to say you wrote it in five minutes, because you said you've been carrying it around in your head. That's what I'm getting at, yeah. I didn't, just put it down. I never tried to write any of it down. I just, and, I, and I didn't really have the song laid out in my mind even. I just, I had a general idea now of what I was trying to do, and it just, it kind of, you call it writing it, it just wrote itself after me dwelling on it for a long time, you know. And so that that was the way that song came about, and it was a big surprise to me that people liked it as much. It almost didn't get on the album. I didn't even offer it to the band go on the album. We needed a song, and I said, well, I've got, I've got a song here that played it for the producer, and he said, my God, he's... <laughs> that's that's a great song. So we did, and a great song it was. Yeah. Well, how are your life and career looking at it from what we call on television a wide shot? <laughs> How's your life and career been after you left the Allman Brothers Band? You left in two thousand. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, that was unfortunate the way that whole thing came, but it happens so often with with especially musical bands because we work together so closely and emotionally. I don't know, it's just some of the members had jealousies and resentments really blown out of control and uh, for one reason or another and they thought that they could, theirs could better their own station if I weren't standing in the way of something that was imaginary, I, I wasn't standing in the way of anyone, you know. So well, it was just that kind of thing, and and I was pushed out. Well, but it's my understanding that you thought, from your viewpoint at least, it was partly a business decision. It was a that, lot of business. And that old devil money was involved, at least to that's, some degree. That's a big part of it. Yes, that's a big part of it. But I don't want to. I don't want to dig in with a lot of, um, uh, you know, just uh, speculation. Of what I think and damage the, the history and the image of the Almond Brothers Band by speculating about what I think it might have been and how how unfair it was and all yeah, this. Stuff. You know, it was a great band for so many years. I don't want to try to blemish it with my little story and. and uh, we'd had a great 40 years or something. <laughs> I don't know. I, I can't complain. I, I, I relish the years that I worked with that Almond Brothers Band outfit, found, well, a founding member. Mm-hmm. We didn't even know what we had when we were putting the thing together, except we knew that each player was, had tremendous talents, you know. Well, one of the things that resulted with your break with the band in 2000 is that you and Greg Allman didn't speak for a very long time. But in the background of this, I interviewed Greg Allman not too long before he died. And I was interested to read that at least near the end that the two of you made it right between yourselves again. Yeah. 
Does Greg Harmon Dickie Betts rub was blown out much out of proportion through the interviews and and other people speaking about us, which things was just their view of things. Greg and I got along probably as well better than any other two people in the band. I mean, it was some of the drummers had a, a real rub with us as time went on. And I'd get mad at Greg and he'd get mad at me. Both of us were kind of, you know, ego crashing people. You know? I mean, we're not egomaniacs, but you, you're achievers, want to achieve, you know? Oh, and sure. That's what broke the band up, that sort of thing. And uh, some of the guys in the band wanted to use our name to, to launch their business ideas. Right. And we didn't like that. And I'm the one that got, was a scapegoat, I guess you could call it, and took the blame for for a lot of this stuff. But the important thing to me, it seems, is that you and Greg Allman, whatever the problems were, before he passed, you got it, you got it back together. Uh, we were talking on and on even before he was obviously really sick. I mean, we knew he was getting sick years before because he had a liver transplant. You know, obviously, you know, that's very precarious, you know. Mm -hmm. But then when we talked once a year, twice a year, he did an interview or something, I, you know, call him and say thanks for saying nice things about me and <laughs> stuff like that. And, uh, but when he got sick, yeah, I called him about every other day, you know, because you knew he was, he was really, really So, you think you know who Elizabeth Reed is? I'll bet you're wrong. Dickie Betts lays down the truth on Dan Rather when the big interview returns. Who is Elizabeth Reed, and why did a senator get clocked at Bill Clinton's inauguration? It's just rock and roll, baby. Dan Rather's big interview continues. I'm looking for early influences on you, where people like Lightning Hopkins and... John Lee Hooker, were those guys any influence on you? Yeah, the individually, some more than others. Robert Johnson, uh, Blind Willie McTell, Jimmy Rogers, the old father of country music back in the 20s and you know, on the 30s. Waiting for a train. Waiting for a train, yeah, and Frankie and Johnny and, yeah. you know, those songs. I have thousands of questions to ask you, but let's take a few songs and sort of tell me the history of them, or in brief, what the process was. What about In Memory of Elizabeth Reed? That's instrumental. I had a, a, a lady that I was seeing, and uh, uh, she, she wasn't married, but she had a boyfriend. Well, it's been so many years now, I guess I can talk. It was, her name was Carmela, and she was a beautiful Italian girl, and she was going with a artist friend of ours, and she liked me. And oh, how the plot thickens. Cloak and dagger kind of situation. So uh, we had our, our secret love affair, and we would go down to the, I didn't have any money, and I, we'd go down to the, the 
graveyard there, an old 1800 graveyard on the river. And, and you went to the cemetery? Yeah, yes. And it was beautiful old tombstones and oak trees in the river, up Muggy River going by there. And we, we would have our rendezvous there. So wow. I couldn't very well call it Carmelo. So on the tombstone there it said, in memory of Elizabeth Reed, <laughs> you know, mother of so and then I thought, well how pretty. So I called the song that in memory of Carmela. Well, I love the story. Well, it is kind of a neat story to tell you, Julia. Well it's become one of the tunes again most associated with the Allman brothers. Yeah, yeah, it 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 was and Dwayne blurted out of what it was all about in Rolling Stone and oh it's so embarrassing because it was a friend of ours and you know but like I said it wasn't his wife but it was a girl oh lady friend. somebody you knew yeah let's talk about Jessica another instrumental yeah um, I wrote that for my daughter and I was stuck I couldn't write the thing I was. I was thinking a lot about Django Reinhardt when I wrote that, mm -hmm. um, who played with two fingers, you know. His style, if you're familiar with it, has kind of a jumpy little, you know, like that with the two fingers. His, right. These were burned in a fire. So I, I, I had this idea, but it wouldn't develop. It just wouldn't get, go anywhere. And uh, I, I had a thing back then, I would have my music in my writing room. I would tell my wife not to clean it up. Don't empty an ashtray, don't take any beer cans out, just leave it alone. Let's roll up paper and throw it around the room. Leave them all there, I just want the place left. So I'm mean, just trying to figure out this thing. And little Jessica was like two years old, a little curtain climber, you know. She come crawling in the room, eating cigarette butts, and you know, picking it. <laughs> I started playing to her, mm -hmm. and it was just beautiful how it came right together. Of course, I'd been working on it for two weeks, and but I couldn't get it. But when I saw her and just saw how innocent, that little happy that you know, she was just having balls, eating cigarette butts and stuff. <laughs> Well, I'm not going to get on you for letting the baby eat cigarettes much. Well, <laughs> it wasn't dangerous, but, you know, <laughs> it's funny how those kind of things can spur your your creativity, you know. I have so much I want to talk to you about, but you're talking about, you know, no, reaching a high level. <laughs> I want you to tell me the story. First of all, tell me if it's true. Because I got the story, you were with Bob Dylan, and some guy in a suit, said to you words along the line, you better take yourself to the woodshed oh, if, you're gonna, if you're going to play with the big boys and you cold cocked him. You want to bring those uh, war stories now. I was at the presidential inauguration for Bill Clinton and Bob, my wife was sitting and her and she and Bob Dylan were having some cookie dough ice cream. <laughs> And, and she was turning him on to this cook. He thought that was the greatest thing in the world. And uh, I went, and the, the, the band couldn't play a 12 bar blues, and they kept losing the chords and everything. So I cut the song a little short and put my guitar down. Come, and this guy said he was uh, the senator, you know. 
and in three-piece suit, and he was a real smart, smart-mouthed guy. And I kind of just kept, you know, not paying any attention to him. But he started making fun of me in the green room. I had a big screen there. He started making fun of the way I messed the song up. And I said, you know, I I listen to you all night. <laughs> he said, well, I'll just take you outside and, you know, I said. Please, you're sitting down, I'm standing up, and you'll never make it to the door. There's not going to be any outside. <laughs> I'm sorry, but uh, these things do happen. And he could come up off the couch with his hands. And, oh, so I, I hit him a couple of good shots, and that was it, you know. You decked it. And he, yeah, and he fell over in Bob Dylan's lap, and Bob was, Bob was you know, taking a little nap. So then I cut my hand, and he was, I thought I'd knocked the senator out. And so here my friends took me to, one thing rushed me out of there, and the next thing to take me to the hospital. My hand was split open here somewhere. Anyway, the fellow that he was with um, called me and said he was not state senator. That was my, you know, I can't take the guy anywhere, it seems. He's always... Well, he was a drug dealer, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, he was. He wasn't a senator, he was a drug dealer. No, he was, he was a gopher to get drugs. When I get back, we've talked about your music for a bit now. Get back to you as a person. Somebody in one of the magazine articles had this quote about you describing you as a person. He said, a quiet guy with a huge amount of soul, possible danger and playful recklessness and behind the eyes. Now, I want this camera over here to go in close on your <laughs> eyes. I don't see that recklessness in your eyes. But on the I, other hand, I don't see as well as I once did. Well, <laughs> I I think they're talking about maybe my my younger days when I was a little little more rowdy, rough and rowdy, I guess, and uh, maybe uh, with a few embellishments to go along with illicit uh, drugs and <laughs> what have you. Uh, but I, I, you know. I'm trying to be defense, put up a little defense here. I'm not, I wasn't just a crazy, you know, wild guy. I could get that way momentarily, though. <laughs> we, have, we like to have fun. If nothing was happening, we'd create a happening. We'd make something. So, yeah, I guess that reckless thing. Don Johnson and I set a, a Japanese restaurant on fire one time. That, that was pretty ridiculous. Just the table. <laughs> but at least you used to have a temper. I've been trying to control that my whole life. I used to just pout, you know, when I was in grade school. And then I just started getting mad when something would just keep on and on and on. I'm bad about not, not saying something about something that's bothering me as soon as I should. You hold it in. Yeah, I hold it in, and then I get fed up and blow up. It's a fault, and I, you know, not a not a good uh, thing. 
But it sounds like you have a better understanding of it now. I do. I, I, I've really, um, over the years, I've read and practiced uh, Zen, Buddhism, you know, try to calm, calming um, techniques. And, you know, it helps. It helps, you know. But I'm not just this walking time bomb that can explode at any moment. No. Don't let me mis misguide you, because um, you know it's not a it's not a good title to have hung around your neck. You know, I've got a bad temper. You better watch out. I got a temper. I mean, a lot of people do, and mine. Um, I shouldn't. I shouldn't let it get away from me. Got a lot of Irish in me, you know, and. Uh, my mother was <laughs> the same way. <laughs> well, I don't want to let the moment pass without saying a lot of good things about you. Okay. Not the least of which is you don't. Well, you said a lot of good things about me already. So well, I you don't get to be one of the world's best known and best guitarists without a certain amount of discipline, a certain amount of dedication to craft. Let the record show that. I want to ask you. It's a difficult question. I acknowledge. But. What do you think is the worst thing that happened to you in your life, and what did you learn from that? Hmm. I've had some bad things happen, that then I learned something after it was all over. I'm losing my mother, my father, you know, lost Dwayne Allman, a year later lost Barry Oakley, two of my very best friends, and musical brothers, you know. With my parents at all, I, I, why couldn't, I wish I had confronted that death thing and said things that I really wish I had said, instead of pretending like everything was going to be okay when you knew it wasn't, you know. Right. Um, so I learned things later, and um, then uh, people like Dwayne and Barry, you know, they, you don't get a chance to do it like that, you know, unexpected deaths, and those are so sad, and I don't know, I'm not sure how much you, you learn from them, though, know? you just learn to, to live with it, I guess, and be kinder to, to people in, in more common ways than when you normally think it doesn't matter, you know, right. just somebody bringing you a, a drink or something, you know, and it's just a thank you, and, and you know, instead of just taking the thing and well, I don't know, just, just uh, do the right thing. It's a little more sensitive and aware of people's you know, how short life is, and and um, you know, try to help somebody when you can and. By the way, I didn't ask you, we were talking about when you were growing up. Was yours a particularly religious family? Was religion a big thing in your family? I thought when you were a kid, very young. Yeah, my grandmother, my grandmother was very high, you know, religious. She wasn't an evangelist that was trying to talk, you know, preach to everybody. Just, don't you come to church with us this Sunday? And that was, that was the extent of her thing. Uh, she was very religious and a very, very nice influence, but my mom and dad, no. Dad, what he he talked about religion and he knew about it, but he didn't practice it very much. And how about yourself? Do you have 
more or less religion now than you had as a kid, or can you truthfully say you I never had much to, to begin it. with? I, I, I've been drawn to a certain, I'm pretty eclectic, really. Um, I don't like narrow-minded religious people that want everybody to be like they are, or they're going to burn in hell or something. Right. I don't like that kind of religion, but um, everybody's not that way, you know. And Buddhist, um, the Eastern philosophies are really interesting to me. In the 1970s, a teenage journalist named Cameron Crowe traveled the country profiling headlining acts such as the Allman Brothers Band for Rolling Stone magazine. I'm a journalist. I write for Cream magazine. Decades later, those experiences became the inspiration behind Crow's award-winning film, Almost Famous, which featured a character with a striking resemblance to Dickie Betts. You know, one of the things I haven't asked you about and I wanted to ask you about it was the movie Almost Famous. Now, <laughs> yeah. a central character in that movie, Almost Famous, was inspired by you. So what did you think of the movie's depiction of you and the band? Yeah, I, I went to the theater and saw that, and I, I enjoyed it. Billy Crudup, I talked to him about that, and he said, yeah, he was portraying me. The, what was um, the guy that wrote the thing? Um, Cameron Crowe? Cameron, yeah. That actually happened with, with our band. We'd had a, a bad run-in with Rolling Stone uh, because they didn't get along with our manager, unbeknownst to us. But they hit us pretty hard with uh, some derogatory interviews, made fun of us and things. And he paraphrased the accents and just made us look like a bunch of hillbillies, you know. So Cameron Crowe wanted to do that. And I had done an interviews with him with my little band on the side <laughs> and when he was with Cream Magazine. And I thought he was a great guy. A lot of it was true. I talked the band into letting him come along right. with us. But it was a compilation of about four different bands. There were things taken from this band, that band. But the character, Billy said, that, yeah, he studied my character. And the guy did even look like me when I was younger, you know. Um, and it was a lot, the thing, the, all the signs on the door, don't disturb, don't ring the phone, don't right. talk, don't, don't call me and ask me if I want to be, you know, I had all these signs. I was so tired that they wouldn't knock, but they'd call the phone, wake yeah. you up and ask if you wanted to be disturbed. No. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought the movie was pretty realistic overall, you know. Kind of eerie to see yourself up on the big screen, somebody playing you, though, isn't it? Well, it wasn't an exact portrayal of me, but... but even though most people that saw it that knew anything said, that's Dickie Betts, he's playing Dickie. Yeah, it was, it was, I was kinda, I don't know, you know, I didn't do that. Well, it's just a movie, huh? <laughs> I wanna pick up on something you just said. It was pretty common to view you as a, quote, redneck band or a bunch of hillbilly yeah, bands. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we had to really reprimand our road crew and our, and 
really point out to our manager. We were doing posters and they were calling the tour a campaign, you know, with rebel flags and the horses and, and it, we, this has got to stop. No rebel flags on the stage, no goddamn advertising. And this was early on. Yeah. And uh, the road crew would tell them not to have any rebel flags, you know, and stuff. And we had to, we wanted to guard against that, you know. We didn't want to be come off as these. And a lot of people still don't realize the aggression behind that rebel flag, you know. Well, we tried to keep that rebel flag thing down, and we're dyed in the wool southern or something. <laughs> but uh, we're, we're not not what you call redneck, bigot kind of attitude, you know. How do you want to be remembered? Well, I, th I think my loved ones know how to remember me. Uh, and I have, I'm so fortunate for having so many friends too, you know, when you're public and, and people like you, it's a wonderful feeling that. Um, but I, I think people will remember me for my music because it really takes a lot of effort and heart, true heart, to make the music effective. You know, you can write any kind of music, but to make it effective, it has to be pretty close to the to being right. You know, so I think that's where I'll be remembered by the the feeling in those in those songs. Well, how about this? Now, I don't want to be disrespectful in any way. You know, in New Orleans, they sometimes play it when they're going away from the funeral or memorial service when the saints go marching in. Yeah. Maybe when your time comes, I don't expect to be around at that time, being a lot older than you are, but how about just playing Rambling Man as we leave the memorial <laughs> service? <laughs> or funeral? fine with me. As long as everybody's having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, thank that's... you. I really appreciate oh, it. Oh, man, man, thank you. I, it's like a day at the beach for me to come here and, <laughs> and uh, be entertained by such a great person as yourself. And that's it for this edition of The Big Interview. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send your comments to viewer at access. TV. And that concludes another great episode of The Big Interview with Dan Rather. We hope you've enjoyed this journey into the life and music of our special guest as much as we have. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We'd also appreciate it if you would leave us a review and maybe even share the show with a fellow music lover. And to stay up to date with all things related to the show, you can follow us on social media, where we share behind-the-scenes tidbits, previews, and so much more. Until next time, keep the music playing.